The following episode contains discussion of drug use and suicide. Please be advised. At the end of the day, no one is going to get better if you over-medicate, if you put them to work physically, if your punishments are so severe that you actually end up physically hurting them. They're not going to learn anything from that. They're going to be worse coming out than they were when in. Welcome to Mad Waters. One family's story from both sides of the mental health system and our search to find those fixing it. I'm Adrienne Seifert. And I'm Michael Seifert. And the voice you just heard was our daughters, whose experiences inspired our pursuit of something better. In the early 2000s, as a neurology resident, I became acutely aware of the power of the brain to deceive itself. I was called to the bedside of an 80-something-year-old man who, nurses noted, had been acting strange. He was ignoring his self-care, shaving on only one side of his face, eating only half the food on his plate. In my neurology exam, I noted that he spoke fluently, possessed decent verbal memory, but, as far as his brain was concerned, he was missing half his body. I raised his left arm in front of his eyes and asked him to wiggle his fingers. And his reply was, whose hand are you holding? Every day, we take for granted that what we are seeing and experiencing is an accurate representation of reality. But what if it's not? What if our brain filters reality differently? What if no matter what people tell us... Like if I'd said to the man, it's your hand. You don't believe them. Well, you'd probably feel like it's not you that's the problem, but everyone else. You'd feel a lot like Alice in Wonderland. But I don't want to go among mad people. Oh, you can't help that, said the cat. We're all mad here. I'm mad. You're mad. I'm Adrian Seifert. I'm Michael Seifert. And this is Mad Waters. Now to a brief and far from thorough neurological explanation of what was happening. This unfortunate man was suffering from hemispatial neglect. Most likely he had some lesion, almost certainly from a stroke, probably localized to the right parietal lobe. The parietal lobe is a part of the brain in the posterior region that plays an important role in mapping the opposite side of the body. So a lesion in the right parietal lobe would affect the left side of the body. And in this case, would lead the individual to neglect that half of his body. The neglect is in fact a brain-based state of self-delusion called anisognosia, which from the Greek means without knowledge of a disease or more commonly lacking insight or awareness. I think it's fair to say that most of us have never heard of this term, but understanding what the implications of it can be for psychiatric patients is like a light bulb for parents and loved ones, and even some providers. To be clear, all of us move through the day with a perception of ourselves and our abilities, the way we come across to others, even the way we move through space that is not an exact reflection of so-called reality, but we have a shared reality with others around us. But for 40% of people with bipolar and 50% of those with schizophrenia, to cite the illnesses that are most commonly associated with anisognosia, the result is that it seems absolutely reasonable to refuse treatment and to reject medication. 
Why? Because they do not have the insight necessary to comprehend that they are sick. Interestingly enough, research is starting to reveal that there is actually anatomical damage in the part of the brain involved with self-reflection for these patients. And as psychiatrists, we are getting better at mapping neuroatypical behaviors like delusions, fixed false beliefs, auditory and visual hallucinations, etc., to the actual brain-based physiology. And it is true that technologies like functional imaging, fMRI, and PET scans, and even EEGs have yielded vast amounts of data. However, we are not even close to being able to use that data to help patients and their families in a consistent manner. And until we are, families and their loved ones may find themselves in positions they never imagined. Instead of banding together against a common foe, the illness, they find themselves begging and pleading with their loved one to accept help, to take their medications, to comply with treatment, especially if the alternative to doing so seems dire. This is especially true for those with anazygnosia. As former National Institute of Mental Health Director Tom Insel put it, we don't have a brain wired well enough to understand itself. For some of us, this can create a cycle of dangerous crises careening from stability to instability over and over. The agonizing question is this, if my child, spouse, parent, the person I would do just about anything to save is unable to see that they are sick, am I willing to stand in front of a court and involuntarily commit them even for just 72 hours? Can I? Should I take away rights that most of us take for granted to sleep in our own beds, use our own phones, listen to music, even use the bathroom when we want? Do I strip those from my beloved believing that the alternative could be fatal? Our guest today knows this dilemma better than most. Doug Reuter was twice elected to the Minnesota House of Representatives, where he served from 1997 to 2001. He is a U.S. Navy veteran and the inventor of the world-renowned board game sequence. In 2015, after over two years of lobbying the Washington State Legislature, he and his wife saw the passage of four new laws, most famously Joel's Law, after his son Joel, who died in 2013. The law allows family members of the mentally ill to petition to have their loved ones put on a 72-hour hold to determine whether they need hospitalization and stabilization. Welcome, Doug. It is a great pleasure to have you here. Well, thank you. I'm uh, proud to be here and anything that obviously I can do to help people deal with mental illness, I'm willing to do. I really appreciate that, Doug. And I wanted to start off the first question. As a mental health professional myself, I'm curious as to what you think is the most challenging part of getting families who have loved ones who are struggling with severe or serious mental illness to understand. To me, the number one thing is the stigma attached to mental illness. If we put out the word on Facebook or in an email that a loved one had cancer, we would have meals delivered to our house, we'd receive cards, we'd receive flowers, we'd receive phone calls. But when someone says, you know, my son has been diagnosed with schizophrenia, people not only don't 
support you in that, they flee from you. And so to me, the the greatest struggle is having to walk through it alone. Yeah, isolation of these families, we know very well, and it's painful. Yeah, not having that guidance, not having someone to help us navigate through this very cumbersome and broken system. Yeah. Right. Can you tell us a little bit about your son before, maybe, um, also when he was younger? Sure. Um, we, Looking back, we believe Joel probably had ADD, ADHD um, growing up. Um, there were times when he was just very cooperative and easygoing, whatever. But then there were other times when when it wasn't so easy. Um, but he was amazingly brilliant, uh, as most of these people are. Uh, most people with uh, bipolar and schizophrenia, they're, they're brilliant people. Mm-hmm. Um, just to give you one quick example, um, Joel finished sixth grade. And in the summer between sixth and seventh grade, he, at the dinner table one night, he said, I'd like to build my own computer from scratch. And my wife and I looked at each other and thought, well, this is, I mean, he's a sixth grader, right? Um, So I said, well, here's what I want you to do. I want you to prepare a list and I want two or three vendors of of each part you need, uh, what the cost is of the parts you need. And once you give me that, we can sit down and figure out if this is something we can do or not. And I thought, well, that'll finish him off for the summer. But two days later, he had uh, everything that I had asked for. Um, We sat down and, uh, you know, Nancy and I figured, you know, we've spent, uh, you know, eight or nine hundred dollars in worse ways. So and so uh, we went online with him and uh, with our dial up modem and um we ordered all the parts and UPS kept coming and FedEx came and post office delivered stuff. And one night he said, I got it. I got the last piece. I'm going to go down and put my computer together. And I told my wife, well, that's the last we'll see of him for the rest of the summer. An hour later, he came up and he screamed, it works. Oh, God. <laughs> this, is, this is a sixth grader. And Joel's memorial service, Joel's boss walked up to me and he said, I've been in the computer field for decades. And he said, I've never worked with anyone as smart as Joel. He said, when we, they're a software company primarily for Apple operating system equipment. And he said, once in a while, our our engineers, and Joel was a, a computer engineer and said, once in a while, we we know we have a bug in some software we've written, and we cannot find it. And he said, when that happens, we just give it to Joel. He goes in his office, closes his blinds, um, puts headphones on, and he said, we pace back and forth uh, outside the door to his office. He said... It's akin to when people watch smoke coming out of the Vatican when they're choosing a new pope. He said, we literally, (laughs) we pace back and forth. And all of a sudden, uh, the blinds in his office will open up and he'll come out. He will not only have found the problem, 
he will have fixed the problem. He will have written the code to fix the problem. And he said, do you have any idea how valuable someone, he says, it's like a sixth sense that that kid has. Um, Thank you so, so that, much that for that sharing So that was Joel. He could, um, and he was fearless. I mean, if he had a problem with something, some product or something, uh, he'd call the company and ask to speak to the president of the company. I mean, he didn't care. He he was very bold. What a unique and, and talented young man. Um, thank you for sharing these very important and touching stories, uh, Doug. And I, I love these uh, perspective of Joel's strengths. I'm wondering as a mental health professional, what were the limits that you saw in the mental health professionals that Joel came across in kind of during the kind of trajectory of his illness? Well, it's interesting that Joel's very first interest uh, breakdown, if you will, was at college in Arizona down in Tucson. And we used the Arizona laws uh, to their fullest and got him to a point where he was court ordered, hospitalized and treated. That happened in 2004. And then um, Arizona law required, it's called AOT down there, assisted outpatient treatment. And down there, uh, what that meant was under Arizona law at the time, Joel had to go to a doctor um, every single week, and he wasn't allowed to leave the county without express permission from his doctor. And he had he had to see a doctor, and the doctor had to be convinced that he was still on his meds and still okay, uh, determined if he needed a, an adjustment in the meds. And if he needed a urine or blood test, um, they didn't have to go back to court for that. Joel just had to comply with that. And he did the whole year without a problem. And um, about three months after that, he thought he was healed. And so he went off his meds and we had to go through that whole process again. We did. Um, by the way, if he didn't show up for his doctor appointment, they didn't need to go back to the court. The doctor just called the police and said, this is his last known address. Uh, he's in violation of a court order. They'd pick him up if he ever did that and return him to the mental hospital where they would again keep him under the original court order um, until they had him balanced and regulated again. It's the It was the best. They have abandoned that whole program since 2004. But in my opinion, it is the answer to people with mental illness that have anosognosia. It's the only way. And if you can get people to stay on their meds for six months to a year, um, they're back pretty much in their right mind. And so anyway, uh, Joel went off his meds again. And, um, and he went through this process. They had him balanced and regulated. Three weeks after he was out uh, the second time, he went off his meds again and quit showing up, and they picked him up and returned him to the hospital. And that time he uh, stayed on his meds, went back to school, graduated, and moved to Seattle. Once he moved to Washington, we, as his parents, had absolutely no idea 
how drastically different the laws in Washington were relative to mental illness and getting people the help they need compared to Arizona. It was a nightmare. Yeah. So I guess now it would be very helpful if you could tell us what did happen on July 5th, 2013. Well, we'd have to back up to about February. So in February, he went off his meds. Um, we were, my Nancy and I went out there on her birthday in mid-March and um, we picked him up to take him out to dinner and we knew, we knew immediately that he was in trouble. We... Um, we, we knew of the signs we had been dealing with this since for nine years from 2009 to 2013. And he knew that we knew. And so after dinner, we dropped him off and, um, we went back to Nancy's sister who lives in Bellevue where we were staying. And we started looking up, uh, how do we go about this in Washington? The same thing we had to go through in Arizona. And we found out that it was virtually impossible. And then the very next day, we found out that Joel had closed out his bank account and got on an airplane for London. And so we worked through the TSA, through federal uh, offices in the state of Washington, SeaTac police, Seattle police. And we were able to, while he was in the air, we were able to convince people in London that he was mentally ill and that he needed to be returned to the United States. And so they did exactly that. They, they uh, intercepted him, put him on a plane back to Seattle. Um, it, it was almost like moving the whole earth to get SeaTac police to uh, intercept him upon his return and bring the DMHP. I don't know what they call that organization. I always say they changed the name of the DMHP to protect the guilty. Um, you don't even want to get me started on the DMHP in the state of Washington. I think that organization should be disbanded. But they intercepted him and they interviewed him for almost two hours. And I got a call from the director of the DCRs, then DMHPs, and said, your son is severely mentally ill, but he's not mentally ill enough for us to hold. <laughs> at, at which point um, I asked, uh, what would he need? What would, how would he have to be in order for you to get him help? And she said, he would have to, uh, have his, a gun in his hand with a loaded gun in his hand with his finger on the trigger, and then we could get him help. <laughs> at which point I asked her if she was on drugs at the time. <laughs> um, and Nancy said, Doug, you're not helping. Um, no, but it is a horrible fact. And it is a fact that we, uh, as parents of a child who struggled, have heard this same story. So thank you so much, Doug, for sharing this. It is so important for people to hear. Yeah. So um, so then between March, between mid-March and late mid-June, I would say, March, April, May, June. So um, on 
Easter Sunday morning in 2013, Joel left the country and went to Canada and attempted suicide in Canada. It wasn't <sighs> successful. He came back, and then um, in May, he was involved in a Washington State Highway Patrol chase up Highway 5, where he was going. Uh, the police had him clocked at 130 miles an hour. He was driving on the left shoulder, sideswiping cars on the freeway, lost control of his car, and went head um head on into one of those great big cement pillars that hold up bridges at uh, the, the police estimate probably at 120 miles an hour. And that kid walked away with only a minor limp. Um, and so that to me was a, a second attempted suicide. I mean, when you drive your car into a cement pillar, um, you can't be looking out for your own health. And um, finally, well, then they put him in a uh, mental institution and a hospital, and he broke out um, remarkably. He wasn't out for long. They caught him and returned him. And then um, in early June, he made a threat to blow up the White House. And of course, once that happens, then we now we have the attention of the Secret Service, uh, you don't even want the Secret Service to be in your living room. Um, and But as a result of that, we finally got him hospitalized and uh, in June. And after two weeks, uh, which, by the way, is an amazingly long time to be in the hospital in, in the state of Washington, especially yes, in King is. County. Yeah. Um, anyway, there was a hearing whether to keep him or not keep him. He had two doctors and the Seattle Police Department sent representatives from the police department begging the judge, judge not to let him go, that he wasn't ready. And the judge ordered him released anyway and then sealed the whole thing so that people in, in the city of Seattle do not know which judge ordered a severely mentally ill person out on the streets against the advice of the police department and his own doctors. Um, I, it's, it just, it really bothers me. This is an aside. How are people supposed to go to the polls and elect judges when they don't know things that their judges are doing anyway? So that was late June. I, I want to say around June 25th, um, a friend of his picked him up at the hospital and later told us that Joel literally did not know who he was when he picked him up from the hospital. And that led to what happened on July 5th. Wow, that is quite, quite a lead up. Um, By the way, um, between Nancy and myself and Joel's friends, between mid-March and mid-June, we made 48 attempts through the DCRs um, to get him put on a 72-hour hold. 48 phone calls, just begging and appealing that they just give him 72 hours and assess him. Um, we could not do that. It took 
you know, ramming his car into a cement pole and threatening to blow up the White House to get him uh, hospitalized for a couple of weeks. Yeah, that's incredible. So um, what did happen? On July 5th, uh, the day he was shot and killed by snipers. So um, we, with no help from the Seattle Police Department, I did my own investigating and um, Joel had bought just after midnight, July 3rd, going or July 4th, going into July 5th, he bought a handgun from a private party in down southern Washington, uh, picked it up and brought it back and was in the elevator of his apartment building uh, about 1.30 in the morning. And there was another couple in the elevator with him. And Joel, uh, this is all testimony from the trial that ensued after he was killed. Um, Joel had that handgun out and they said, you know, that makes us nervous. Please put that away. And he said, no, I know my rights. And he didn't. And they got off and he went up to his apartment and that couple uh, called the police and the police knew when they told him his apartment number and address, um, the police knew exactly who it was. Um, they had just a couple of weeks ago um, been involved in the hearing at the hospital with, with the judge begging him not to let him go. So the police showed up at 2 a.m. and an eight-hour-long standoff ensued, and um, they recorded the last six hours of it. And at the end of eight hours, um, they they really had no choice, but uh, two different snipers shot him from two different directions at the same time. Mm. Tragic story. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, after, after hearing the months and I don't know, years leading up to this, it does feel like there were so many times to intervene. Missed opportunities. Missed opportunities. And I think that is, you know, that's the real tragedy. Um, so, you know, tell us, um, how did Joel's Law come about um, after that? Okay. So we found out after the fact <clears throat> that it was virtually impossible to get someone even put on a 72-hour hold, forget about being hospitalized and treated. Um, so there is a law in, uh, I, I don't know this for a fact, I was told this by a Washington state legislator, that for 42 years in the state of Washington, only the DCRs, now the, back then the DMHPs, only they could refer someone to the court for possible 72-hour hold, which is the start of the process of getting someone help in every single state in the country. You have to put them on a 72-hour hold and they need to be assessed. Well, in Washington, it was literally written in the law that family members and friends, whatever, had absolutely no standing, legal standing with the court. So if a parent of a severely mentally ill person um, 
wanted to appeal a no-hold decision by the DCRs, the judge would just throw it out because they had no legal standing. So what Joel's Law did, what Joel's Law does, is it allows an immediate family member of someone that is mentally ill, if the DCRs look at a case and say, we are not going to take this to the court, we are recommending a no uh, hold situation, the family can fill out uh, Joel's Law petition and file it with the court. They now have legal standing in the state of Washington. And um, I, I pretty much wrote the law. We we did have help from uh, legislative lawmaking people who write laws and make sure that everything in the law balances with all the other laws. But the basic concept um, uh, was my idea. And so when, when a family member petitions the court to override, asking the judge to override the DCRs and actually put their loved one on a 72-hour hold, the court notifies the DCRs that a petition has been filed and they have um, 24 hours. I believe it's 24 hours. I haven't looked. That that thing got amended and reamended and unamended and whatever. But I think it's 24 hours to report to the court and provide the court all the evidence that they had accumulated on this person for this one incident um, to the court, and they had to do it under oath. So if it was found to be falsely admitted to the court, someone could be charged with perjury. Um, and then the court would take this, and after the, the DCRs responded to the court, and by the way, I gave them an out to save face. If they didn't want to um, fight it, all they had to do is tell the court, instead of filing all the evidence under oath, all they had to do is tell the court, um, you know, we, we could see, okay, go ahead and hold them for 72 hours. And that got them off the hook. I wanted them to be able to save face and not go to jail for supplying wrong information. It's an important part of Joel's law. Family members now not only have the right to the legal standing to go to before a judge and tell them the story, they no longer are restricted to the one incident that is at question here. They're allowed to present written and uh, evidence under oath again for, of the last three years of history of their loved one and their mental illness so that the judge could look at things and say, well, this this same exact thing has happened eight, nine, ten times over the last three years. Up until Joel's law, the court was not allowed to look at anything other than the one incident that brought the case there. And I, I've heard that NAMI, Washington NAMI, got that amended the next year or two years later. And now you can bring in the whole life history instead of just three years. This is so valuable. If there's one thing I could tell a family member or a friend of, of someone suffering with severe mental illness is that you start creating a diary. You write everything down. You 
right times and dates and what exactly happened and what they did and what they said. And it's your best form of evidence when you end up in court. Absolutely. That's so important. And Tommy, I'm kind of curious to know, Doug, was the original Joel's Law, did it go through the first time to the legislature or was there some pushback? Um, in 2014, it passed the House. Um, I don't remember the vote. It was a huge margin. I, I want to say 95 to 3 or whatever. And we got over to the Senate and it hit a snag over there. And um, I don't want to go into names, um, but there was one senator in particular that really strongly opposed Joel's Law. And But I can tell you what the overriding thought was. At that time, the Republican Party was in charge of the Senate, and they had promised the vote. This was 2014. This was an election year. It was not a budget year. Um, And the fiscal note on Joel's Law came in around $2 million of biennium. And um, they had promised the voters that they weren't going to raise spending and they weren't going to raise taxes. And and so um, they killed Joel's Law on the last day. Um, and it was Nancy's birthday and it made for a very long ride home. Because oh. um, we had driven, we had, I'd driven out and Nancy flew out. But we were there the entire session in 2014. And um, I, I have to say it was uh, the Speaker of the House, Frank Chop, at the time called us later that summer and said, well, I just want to talk to you about what we, how we're going to approach when you come back next year. And we said, no, we're not coming back next year. We gave it our best shot. And he said, no, uh, you're coming back. And so he said, you need to tell me what I need to give you um, in order to get you back. And so I said, I said, well, uh, we have 10 laws that we want introduced in the house. Uh, we will worry about the Senate. You just you allow them to be introduced and you allow one, the first committee hearing. That's your only commitment. I'll, I'll, I'll worry about the rest. And, and um, he only vetoed one of them and I, we don't need to talk about which one. And so nine new laws in 2015 were introduced in the House. Um, I had chief authors lined up in the Senate. Um, out of those nine, four actually got passed and signed by Governor Inslee. And one of them had nothing to do with mental illness, but Joel's law was one of them. And um, even right up to the last day, um, the Senate tried to amend Joel's law that had passed out of the House. And it would have, the amendment would have just destroyed Joel's law altogether. The amendment was before a a family member could appeal to the court, they had to find a psychiatrist or a psychologist that would meet with their loved one and sign a a statement under oath to the court that it was their opinion that they needed to be put on hold. Well, a lot of time, you don't even know where the mentally ill person is, Hmm. uh, let alone I I challenge you to find a psychiatrist or a psychologist if the person wasn't seen one regularly that would ever take that case on. No, that is a fact. That 
as as one of those creatures, I would say that, um, that I agree with you completely. Right. And so we managed to get that amendment killed, uh, actually changed. I, I wrote a, an amendment to the amendment and found some people that would introduce it and go talk to that one senator and get him to agree with it. And he did. And Joel's law became law. It seems like when we're dealing with an organization like the ACLU, which is priding itself on maximizing an individual's autonomy, that when it comes to anisognosia, there is no autonomy. <laughs> exactly. Doug, I want to, first of all, just, you know, thank you for sharing your story, Nancy's story, and Joel's story with us. Um, I think um, it is such um, an honor to have you here and be willing to share that. Um, and of course, I also want to tell you how grateful we are that, you know, you did this in his memory and how many, many people have benefited from that. So thank you so much for joining us today. I just wanted to add that as a board-certified psychiatrist who has worked in inpatient with many, many individuals with serious mental illness, I appreciate you being a champion for these people who often do not have a voice. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. And thank you for uh, just having me on. And, uh, you know, I, I still believe that the more people we can talk to reasonably and clearly and unemotionally about these issues, uh, I think reason can still win out. And so any chance I get, I, I talk to people about the opportunity rather than, but if we could just get rid of the stigma that, mm. you know, people, um, I, I've been working with a family right here in Denton for about four months now. Uh, their daughter is severely mentally ill off her meds and, um, uh, they don't know where she is right now. and uh, But just the hope that maybe they can get their child uh, into treatment and get straightened out and live a, a relatively normal life, uh, it, it has to become that way. It, it, we, we have to work to help people that can't help themselves. Adrian, I think Doug raises an important issue, and this idea of anisognosia is crucial. But here we're reflecting on this tragic story of an individual and individuals who, with serious mental illness, were suffering. And I would argue that the stigma that Doug talks about is a form of our social or societal anisognosia. We as a people are refusing to come to terms with the seriousness of serious mental illness and of addressing this in public and social ways and maybe even political ways. And I think that if we hadn't recognized it until now, the pandemic was one way in which many, many people had to come to terms with mental illness or even just a general sense of well-being that dissipated over that year and a half period. And so now that more people are aware or are feeling that themselves, 
What are we going to do about it? What is motivating you to speak out today? I think what's uh, my main motivator is change in the industry. I want to see things improve drastically in the mental health industry, any institutions, jails, things like that. And I think that using my own experience by doing that would have a profound impact on the system. The COVID-19 pandemic was a unique time to be chief medical officer of one of the biggest freestanding psychiatric hospitals in Washington State, and not for the reasons you might think. Yes, there were the spikes of COVID outbreaks that closed down whole units, the fear that patients and employees harbored of becoming infected, but we worked diligently to manage those issues with input from infection control. But the real challenge came from an overwhelmed medical staff. Within a six-month period of time, we lost 55% of our doctors and 60% of our nurse practitioners. The strain of an already exhausted pool of front-line medical staff was unimaginable. Only much later did I realize that we were part of the much larger exodus known as the Great Resignation. The real issue at the heart of this mass exodus was the moral distress felt from those workers in the trenches who felt ignored by an organization that cared more for its bottom line than the health and safety of its workers. As workers from almost every sector are leaving jobs that have led to fear, anxiety, and high levels of stress, businesses and corporations are having to ask themselves, what responsibility do I have to my employee, to my clients, to the public? Can Amazon, Tesla, Microsoft, Boeing, Facebook, to name a few, play a bigger role in our collective well-being? Next time on Mad Waters. <laughs>